John 16, we're going to start in verse 4b. Jeff ended off with 4a last week, and we'll start in 4b this week. Our context is Jesus giving his final instructions to the disciples before going to the cross. And he's just laid out for them the expectation of their coming tribulation. He says, the world will hate you. In the last chapter, you will be persecuted. Uh, you will be killed. And maybe worst of all, Jesus keeps saying that he's going to leave. He's going away. And so Jesus knows that the disciples are in kind of a turmoil. And he, he knows that his leaving really doesn't make any sense to them. If you think about it, the persecution that uh, Jesus experienced would be redirected to his followers when Jesus would leave, right? Uh, Colin Cruz, a commentator, said, while he remained with them, he was the lightning rod that attracted the flashes of persecution, right? Uh, even Jesus, when he's being arrested in Gethsemane, he says, he says to the guards arresting him, if you seek me, let these men go. So all was focused on Jesus. But when Jesus was to leave, where would the persecution fall? But on the disciples of Jesus. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I am uh, reading these passages, um, sometimes it makes me a little nervous if I'm honest, because I'm a disciple of Jesus in his absence. And like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, I have the potential, we have the potential to face persecution as his followers, especially since he's not here to receive it himself directly. Um, now, a lot of what Jesus tells the disciples in regard to their persecution is specific, I think, to the persecution that they will face, these apostles, these men with Jesus. I don't anticipate that we will, like verse 2 says, be put out of the synagogues, right? That's not our particular application, or we're not going to be brought before kings, or I don't anticipate even that we will die for our faith, though maybe. Um, however, I have faced persecution. Um, while sharing the message of Jesus in a neighborhood council meeting, um, I've faced some repercussions of making my belief known in some social context. And I wonder, like kind of our discussion we talked about a couple weeks ago, how often I haven't experienced persecution just because I've avoided it. For instance, maybe I've avoided an uncomfortable situation or an uncomfortable conversation. And um, like, I know that I've avoided persecution by at times kind of softening the gospel message so it won't come off as so offensive or so direct to somebody. So I don't know if you feel that way at all with me, if you're, if you're ever like uneasy about persecution that we might face or that we have faced or that could come in the future, persecution that we could feel as Christians in the world. If you're ever hesitant or scared to share your faith, if you've ever um, avoided situations that may 
bring about some sort of persecution for Christ's sake. If you're ever scared of the future because you anticipate um, the persecution of Christians like we see in other countries, if any of those things are true of you, which sometimes they are for me, uh, I think this passage is, is for you. And I think Jesus has some words for us because in Jesus' absence, again, we become the target because the world hates Jesus, that Jesus that we serve and he isn't here. So now that hatred can be put upon us, his followers. So let's go ahead and look at verse four, the second half of it. Jesus says, I did not say these things to you about the hatred and persecution from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow or grief has filled your heart. So here Jesus comments that the disciples aren't asking, where are you going? Now, if you followed along uh, in the previous chapters, you might remember the disciples did actually ask, where are you going? Peter asked him in chapter 13, Lord, where are you going? Thomas said to him in chapter 14, Lord, we don't know where you're going. And so Jesus is like, but you aren't asking, where are you going? If you think about it, uh, the, the question, where are you going, has two meanings, okay? The first meaning is, where are you going? The second meaning is, wait, don't leave. Where are you going? See the difference between those two? Like one is focused on understanding. Like, I want to know, where are you going? What are you going to do? What are you going to accomplish? And the other is just an emotional response. Wait, wait, you're leaving. Where are you going? Which isn't really asking where you're going. It's just, it's like when a parent leaves their child in a dark room to go to bed and the, the child's like, no, no, where are you going? They're not really asking where they're going. They're saying, why, why are you leaving me, right? So I, I think that's what um, Jesus is saying. You, don't, you haven't inquired about where I'm going or thought about what I'm going to accomplish. You're just concerned about your own kind of personal loss. Like, it's not Jesus, what are you accomplishing? But uh, why are you leaving us? What is happening? And I think Jesus is commenting that they should be more concerned about the where are you going side of things. And if they knew where Jesus was going, they wouldn't be filled with grief, but they would rejoice, as we'd see coming up here in the passage. So verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. The helper we've already learned is the Holy Spirit in chapter 14. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That word convict also um, means, as John uses it, to expose. Like in John chapter 3, verse 20, where Jesus said, Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So, so the Holy Spirit will come and he'll bring exposure like light in the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Uh, verse 9, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. 
Verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let's stop there for a minute. Um, a little bit of pneumatology, okay? The theology of the Holy Spirit, just based on this passage. There's a lot of books and books that can be written on the theology of the Spirit, but just based out of this context, I want to just point out a few things about the Holy Spirit. First of all, the Holy Spirit is a person, not an it. Uh, in this section, he is spoken of as a he. Um, and he speaks, right? It's don't speak. Uh, he is not an it. He's not a feeling. The Holy Spirit is not just some vague kind of force, like we, the Holy Ghost might kind of bring to your mind. So let's not refer to God as, as it. Um, he's the third person of the Trinity. Okay, he's a, He has a person and has a personality and uh, speaks and so the Holy Spirit is a person, not a it. Okay. Um, secondly, and we see that as he's referred to in kind of the masculine form in those verses. Secondly, the Spirit explains to us the significance of the words and the works of Jesus. Or we can't understand properly the words and the works of Jesus without the Spirit's illumination. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 speaks of the word of the cross as something that God reveals to us through the Spirit. He tells us that it has to be spiritually discerned. And without the Spirit, we can't have the mind of Christ. We can't understand the things pertaining to him. If you haven't noticed in our study uh, of, of John, he's drawn a lot of attention to the lack of understanding of the people, the disciples, the crowds, everyone. And many of those difficult things to understand, when the Spirit came, the disciples would then begin to understand. And they'd say, oh, that's what Jesus meant, or, oh, that's why he did that. If you read the book of Acts, you can notice the confidence that they have in preaching um, the truth about Jesus, and they have this understanding since the Spirit had been given to them. And scholars call that work of the Holy Spirit, I think, illumination, okay? Um, thirdly, the Spirit never contradicts Jesus. The second half of verse 13, he will not speak on his own authority. And the second half of verse 14, he will take what is mine and declare it. So the Spirit only speaks what Jesus gives him to speak. If you remember also in chapter 14, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I, Jesus, have said to you. So the Spirit will never tell you or anyone to do something that contradicts what Jesus, the Logos of God, has already spoken. Now the Spirit may give us kind of special light to our application, how we might specifically live out those words and teachings of Jesus in his word, but he won't 
The Spirit won't give us new information that is outside of God's word or outside of Jesus. Okay? So when verse 13 says that the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth, or better, he will guide you in all truth, he's talking about guiding you in a more thorough understanding of the truth already revealed in Jesus Christ or the implications of the truth revealed in Jesus Christ. Because if you think about it, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no truth outside of the logos, the word of God. If you remember chapter 8, when Jesus says, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free, well, the verse before that says that we will, we will know that truth, and it will set us free when we abide in Jesus's word. Truth is wrapped up in Jesus, and the Spirit imparts our understanding or gives us understanding of Jesus' words, and he will never contradict what Jesus says. The Spirit doesn't speak his own words, but the words of Jesus, which Jesus receives from the Father. So, so I tell you that to say, don't ever fall for someone who says, the Holy Spirit told me to do this or that. If it contradicts what Jesus has already told us to do in his word, they're not hearing that from the Holy Spirit. He will never contradict what Jesus has said. So Jesus is wanting to encourage his disciples while he's telling them, I'm leaving. And he does so by saying that his leaving is prompting the sending of this Holy Spirit, which he says in verse 7, is actually better than Jesus staying around. I don't know if you've ever heard somebody say this, like, oh, if I could only have been around in Israel in the first century and been able to spend time with Jesus himself, and that would change so much if I just could have been there. And they're so fortunate to have walked with Jesus. But Jesus says to his disciples, his going away is to their advantage. Having the spirit in place of Jesus is better. Well, why? I think the answer is uh, probably a lot, but um, something that we might not see in the surface of the text here is that the giving of the Spirit is the dawn of a new and better era, an era of peace. The Spirit ushers in the kingdom of God. Okay, the coming of the Spirit has a strong connection with the kingdom of God uh, that was promised in the Old Testament. So first century Jews were anticipating because of the prophets, a pouring out of the Spirit of God that would bring about blessing and righteousness and peace. There's tons of prophecies that talk about that. I'll read a couple for you here. Isaiah 32, 15 says, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice, when, when the Spirit is poured upon us, then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. That's a prophecy from Isaiah. When will that happen? When the Spirit is poured upon us from on high. 
That's Ezekiel 32. We also know from, I'm sorry, that's Isaiah 32. We know from Ezekiel 36 that Jesus, or that God says, I will put my spirit within you. In the future, he's talking about through those Old Testament prophets, I'm going to put my spirit in you. And that meant kind of the initiation of a new covenant where God's people would begin to actually obey him forever. So the spirit coming, Jesus sending the spirit is the is means the coming of the kingdom of God. If God's spirit didn't come, neither really would his kingdom. So Jesus, um, maybe he'd be reigning as king uh, in heaven after his death and resurrection and defeat of Satan, but no one would obey him or their obedience would be kind of Old Testament-like, which wasn't the glorious kingdom that God had promised because their hearts were hard and they couldn't obey, right? But instead, no, the spirit is given so we can begin to see the, the actuality of the kingdom of God happening. Even disciples needed the spirit of God before the church would begin to spread through them, right? They're, they're given the spirit of God and that's when this, this message of the cross and the kingdom of God begins to take off all around them, through them. So, so hearts need to change. They need that spirit of God. And it wouldn't happen until Jesus accomplished his work on the cross and sent his spirit to breathe life into his people. And that was an Old Testament prophetic uh, uh, anticipation that they had of the coming of the spirit and that uh, bringing of the kingdom of God. Specifically, in this passage, we see that the Spirit convicts or exposes the world in regards to sin and righteousness and judgment. Uh, Leslie Newbegin says that the Spirit is a powerful advocate who goes before the church to bring the world under conviction. We also see here that the Spirit kind of extends the ministry of Jesus as Carson puts it, um, he spreads the word and the works of Jesus into the whole world, not just where Jesus himself could physically travel about. So another commentator said the coming of the Holy Ghost was not merely to supply the absence of the son, but to complete his presence so that the presence of Jesus could go everywhere. We also see specifically the spirit guides disciples in the truth, specifically the truth about the word and the works of Jesus that we really wouldn't be able to understand without the spirit. We'll talk more about that shortly. So the coming of the spirit is a good thing. Jesus leaving, sending the spirit is a good thing. It's actually advantageous for the disciples because until this point, until the, the giving of the spirit that was about to occur, the disciples would kind of be fighting a losing battle. No one had the illumination of the spirit to understand Jesus' words and his works or to know the conviction of sin and of righteousness. And the ruler of the world wouldn't be judged. But when the spirit came, everything begins to change for the better. It's to our advantage as the spirit ushers in this kingdom of God. Let's look at verse 16. A little while, Jesus says, and you will see me no longer. 
and again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. <laughs> it's like a tongue twister. Verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that the human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. So you see what Jesus is saying there. He's, he's, he's talking about his death and resurrection, I believe. In a little while you won't see me, like tomorrow when I die and for three days, and a little while longer you will see me, three days later when, when I resurrect, right? And as we've seen many times so far, a dead Messiah at this point makes absolutely no sense to the disciples. And so that's like, what do you mean in a little while and in a little while and go to the Father? And, and, and so Jesus is, is kind of preparing them, I think, for this brief time of intense mourning that they're about to experience this weekend while he's in the grave which will then quickly in a little while be replaced by extreme joy when he comes back to life. It's just like the pain of a woman in labor. It's a little while, but that's replaced by the joy of seeing her new child, right? So in that day when Jesus is resurrected, when they have this joy, he says, you will ask nothing of me. Now, the Greek has two different words for ask, uh, at least, that I know of, uh, which kind of confuses our English reading because there's a lot of ask here in this next section. Uh, one word for ask is erotao, which often means to question, like I'm, I'm asking a question of somebody. Um, the other, eteo, means to ask for something. So in, in English, you understand there's two different words. If I, if I ask you something, then it's, I can ask you a question or I can ask you for something. And those are kind of two different Greek words, it seems. And Jesus goes back and forth between these two types of asking. This first one that he brings up here in verse 23, most assuredly means to ask a question. So in that day, he says, when I've been resurrected, you will ask nothing of me. All those questions that you have, you won't be asking those questions anymore. It's gonna make sense to you when I've resurrected. But then he changes to the other kind of ask in verse 23, the second part. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask or ask for something, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name, so it, that's not that they haven't asked anything from God, but they haven't asked anything to this point in Jesus' name, quote unquote. He says, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. 
We'll come back to this in just a minute, but for now, 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech, or I've said them obscurely to you. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that, you'll ask, that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. After the resurrection of Christ and his ascension and the giving of the Holy Spirit, many things to the disciples would become clear. Before that time um, and up to this point in the Gospel of John, understanding that the Messiah would suffer and die for the sins of mankind was impossible. But clarity was coming. That's kind of one of one of the significant themes in the book of John that they didn't understand, but at some point they would understand. If you remember way back in chapter two, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And the Jews are like, huh? It's taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days. But it says he was speaking about the temple of his body. And then it says, when therefore he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So it wasn't until his resurrection that they understood what the heck he was talking about. Another example in chapter 13, when Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. Peter says, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. So after the resurrection, many things would become clear. And especially because the helper would guide them in all of this truth about Jesus. So Jesus explains an entirely new paradigm when it comes to our interaction with the Father. When we won't have any more questions of Jesus and we ask for things of the Father in Jesus' name and the Father gives it to us. So now that your questions have been answered, you won't have any more questions for Jesus. The we understand now the significance of Jesus' death and his resurrection and what the heck he's talking about in these things. After that, the requests that you disciples make of the Father in my name will be given to you. People probably before this asked God for all sorts of things, right? Before, before the resurrection, before this, this time in history, they asked for all sorts of things. They probably asked for God to take down Rome and to grant them power and wealth and control. But until they understood the work that Jesus accomplished, they wouldn't be able to ask for things in Jesus' name, because they didn't understand what Jesus's purposes are. I hope this is making sense, but when you understand the cross, when you understand the type of Messiah Jesus is, a Messiah through suffering and sacrifice and death, then you know what kinds of things to ask the Father for. And it won't be for ease or for power 
or to be served as a witness to the resurrection of Jesus and with the help of the Spirit, we ask with the perspective of Jesus in his name. Before, um, I don't remember if we read it. I don't think it comes up in the book of John, but um, in at least in Mark and Matthew, before understanding the cross, the, the death of the Messiah, remember Jesus tells Peter, hey, because Peter's like, no, Jesus, you, you should never die. You're the Messiah. That doesn't make any sense. You shouldn't die. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Then he says, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That is, you can't understand what God wants or what God is doing until you understand that he must die and raise again. A proper understanding of the cross, that Jesus, our example, was crucified, makes our requests of the Father in line with Jesus' name or what Jesus stands for which is in summary to, to love and to serve other people. In fact, I wonder if a summary of, that we could give of asking in Jesus' name could be asking the Father for things for the sake of others, which is exactly what Jesus is gonna do in his prayer to the Father in chapter 17. He's praying, asking for things for the sake really of the disciples. So bottom line here, after the death and resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, things change. And the disciples and we now have access to the Father that comes through Jesus. And what we ask in his name or with a proper sacrificial Messiah perspective, those things will be given to us. So it's the same kind of idea of a historical turning point here, a new era. The spirit ushers in the kingdom of God and post-resurrection now, we have a different relationship to God the Father through Jesus. Verse 29, his disciples said, ah, oh, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? <laughs> Bottom line is they don't yet understand, which is going to be proven by the actions that they give later that night and the next day, which he says in verse 32, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and you will leave me alone. Like you obviously don't fully understand at this point even though you say that you did in verse 29. Um, but Jesus says, yet I am not alone for the Father is with me. And then comes Jesus' final message for the disciples. This is the, the final thing, really, lesson that he has for them before the betrayal and the arrest of, of Jesus. He's going to go in chapter 17 to speak a little bit more, but it's really a prayer to the Father. So in this final thing, we read, Jesus saying this to the disciples, I have said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. 
so in the recent chapter 15 he'd given the disciples a lot of bad news right and they're freaked out not only about the hatred and the persecution and the death that they will soon face but also that jesus is leaving but jesus is wanting them to grasp a bigger picture that he must leave one for a little while to die for the sins of the world and two to send his spirit and begin his kingdom reign in the hearts of people and he was saying you can't see it now in fact you can't even bear to know the extent of what's to come i know you're troubled i know that you can't make sense of these things how this perfect and this good kingdom of god will, will come to be but soon you will experience peace like you've never had before because of this work that i'm about to do for in this work he says i have overcome the world it's like verse 11 when he says the ruler of this world is judged so the whole point of Jesus saying all of these things to the disciples, I believe, and I think the other couple of guys have pointed this out and it's come up before, but is to encourage them. And in this case, to encourage them with an offer of peace. Peace when? When Jesus leaves to return to the Father because his work here is done. Now, here's what I want you to take away. One of the things. There was a turning point in history after the cross. And we, you and me, are now in that time of peace and joy. That little while of three days when Jesus would be in the tomb for the disciples would be a time of utter defeat and pain and dismay and mourning. And they had a reason for feeling that way in their ignorance. They didn't understand what was going on. They understood that Jesus, who they thought was the Messiah, was dead. He must not be the Messiah. We don't have reason for feeling that way in ignorance. That is not to be our experience in the current age. Jesus tells the disciples that for a little while they will weep and lament. And I'm sure that must have been almost unbearable, but that was only for a time. And that time is not now. Christ died for the forgiveness of our sins and was resurrected. So we now understand that death is not the end, not for Jesus, not for us. Now we have the spirit of God helping us understand these things. And the work of Christ on the cross, he has now given us access to the Father and we can ask of him, the Father who loves us, and he gives us everything we ask in Jesus' name. So we don't live in the uncertainty and the ignorance and the sorrow of death and the grave. We um, now, like the disciples, uh, we will have trials and difficulties and tribulation. That's just as applicable to us. Things that could make us fearful and uneasy in this life. Maybe people will hate us. Maybe people will persecute us. Maybe they'll kill us. But we now, in this age, know the resurrection. 
We have witnesses telling us about the resurrection of Jesus. We now in this age have the illumination of the Holy Spirit, which they haven't always had to guide our understanding of Jesus's accomplishments. We now need not be dismayed. Why would we be? The disciples after the resurrection and with the Holy Spirit weren't full of sorrow anymore. They were full of peace and joy and enthusiasm in spite of their tribulation. They were going to go on and be martyred, right? And how did they maintain their joy and their peace in that tribulation? Because they knew the resurrection. They understood the significance of the death of the Messiah. They had been implanted with the Holy Spirit, who, um, as Paul says, is the guarantee of our inheritance. They had that peace come on them seemingly instantaneously, right? And you can see it in their boldness in the book of Acts. We're not talking years later after they've taken, you know, a gradual kind of spiritual maturity that they're preaching these amazing sermons in boldness and in confidence and in peace. No, it's days later. The book of Acts starts right after Jesus or, or starts with Jesus ascending. And days later, because of these things, because they understand the significance of the death and resurrection of Jesus, because they have the spirit empowering their understanding, they now have peace and joy and speak with boldness. They're not mourning any longer. The time of peace is is now. And y'all, we are living in that era. This era of the knowledge of the death and resurrection of the Messiah and the illumination and indwelling and transformation of God's spirit. So he said, I've said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. His kingdom is here and is coming, not as the disciples first expected, but now we on this side of the cross can see it, can know it. Now we can understand his offer of peace. We understand it's not a superficial peace. It's not peace that the world gives, right? Chapter 14, not peace that just kind of lasts for a moment because we have a temporary victory, but it's an eternal peace because the ruler of this world has been judged. We understand what has been accomplished in that death of Christ. We understand how that secures our place with God, how Jesus reigns now at the right hand of the Father, how he sent his spirit into the world to convict and to guide us in truth. We understand how Jesus will come again. We understand how the worst seemingly possible thing, the death of Christ, has become the best possible thing, our salvation. So maybe our worst possible things, our tribulations, will give way to our resurrection and our glorification. We've been given this illumination of the Holy Spirit to help us understand these things. So our joy now, post-resurrection, is full. Our peace now, post-Pentecost, is full and secure. So fear not. Be not dismayed. Don't worry or fear as if Jesus wasn't resurrected in the face of tribulation. Don't worry or fear as if his spirit wasn't with us. We're not ignorant to those things. Let's not live that way, but let's live in the peace and the joy that Jesus has to offer.